You're listening to Got Tech, the podcast with your hosts, Eric Geis and Nick Johnson. Welcome back to Got Tech, the podcast. This is episode 49 called Education Questions That Need Answering. In this episode, we reflect on some of our favorite happenings from 2019 as we answer 10 listener questions that we've accumulated over the past several months. You'll hear our take on everything from bored students to creative teaching on a budget. In our final segment, Geis and I will share our plans for the upcoming winter break. Check it out. It's episode number 49. This means a couple of different things. One, we are one away from half of an accomplishment. Yeah, I know. That's uh, halfway to the triple digits is pretty pretty crazy. What's the what's the other thing that 49 means? I mean, that's a big number. 49 means it's the last episode of 2019. Oh, that's right. Yeah, we're closing in. This is sort of like our yearly uh, wrap-up episode. We did a similar version an entire year ago of Got Tech, the podcast, where we just sort of close in on, I guess, like you said, reflections from the year, things we liked, things we didn't like, things that worked well, things we're excited about. And we wanted to kind of bring you guys something similar to that today in this episode episode to close out 2019. So have you had some time, guys, to reflect and kind of consider where we've been and where we're going? I have, but before I get to reflections, uh, I just want to say it's half an accomplishment because Nick and I sat down at the beginning of Got Teched and we made a goal of getting to at least 100. And I mean, that was a lofty goal. It, it's, a, it's a big lofty goal, but we didn't want to just do this for 10 episodes and be like, you know what, we're done. We, we wanted to give it a shot to see what it turns into. And I'm very happy of our successes and our learning experiences, aka failures that we've had so far. So that kind of ties it into the reflections a little bit. And for both of us, we've had some successes personally in our education. Yeah, it's been a big year for that. Less less so for me. I know Geist has some exciting news. I'll let you share it in a second. But uh, I, I earned an advanced degree this year. I finally uh, got my, my master's degree in uh, education education and it was a long time coming anybody who's been through this process knows it's it's a grind as, as teachers especially because you're doing it you know on top of your normal career so you you know you're at work eight hours a day at least maybe more if you do any kind of coaching or extracurriculars and then you go home and trying to wrestle grading and lesson planning and hopefully learning about new tech and then on top of that you've got your own schoolwork and papers to write and readings to do it's just uh it's brutal but we we somehow we do it and we get through it and it's nice to kind of I don't know, put that extra feather in your cap um i think a lot about what the the master's degree or really any degree kind of does for you I, a lot of teachers i hear get it they say like eh, you know, it's just didn't really do much for me it's just an extra piece of paper maybe it gives you a little bump in pay if you're lucky but uh i think it def for me at least i don't know how you feel but it definitely kind of just it advanced or expanded my understanding of i don't know sometimes just like uh, the human brain or the psychology of students and what they need and and the different philosophical beliefs about education and teaching styles in the moment it doesn't always seem super helpful and a applicable, but 
I think it does make you think about things differently. And I know it's changed the way I plan lessons, trying to think about, you know, the whole student and and, and trying to change and give them as much variety and, and meet their needs. Uh, so that uh, for the master's degree has been particularly helpful for me. I'm not sure if you felt the same way about yours. Speaking of that, what did you just get? Well, I just got a reduction on my auto insurance. <laughs> oh my God. But that, that has nothing to do with this. <clears throat> but I, I just got that email saying that, hey, good news. You've been a good driver. We reduced your auto insurance by $200. There you go, everybody. That's the big news. 200 less bucks. Which means that my wife and I can drive pretty safe. I'm knocking on wood because... You know, I don't want anything sure. to go against that. But, you know, in all seriousness, uh, I'm going to say we got a doctorate degree. And the reason why I say we, and I just earned my doctorate uh, degree in teacher leadership in digital transformation and education. And the reason why I say we is because this took me th- between three and a half and four years. And and that that is a long time to me. And it seems like it took like 12 years maybe 15 years because I feel like I was at it forever because I was making time in my day uh, where I would get to school at 4.45 in the morning to write a paper. And the reason why I had to do that is because of the fact that, you know, I have a family, I have a full-time job, I coach a couple of sports, that type of thing. But uh, the reason why I keep saying we got a doctorate degree is because there's several people that made this possible. You know, my wife, my mother-in-law, you know, my kids, even though they're probably a little young yet to understand what they sacrificed in this process. But uh, my peers that helped me, I have several colleagues that I'm very grateful for, for helping me in this process, uh, allowing me to do studies with them involved because I don't have a classroom, a physical classroom. So we got things done this year. So that was one. I, you know, my, my family grew this year too. So I just, uh, we just celebrated the birth of our third kid, you know, six months ago. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's, it's big stuff, man. I, I, I know I've told you congratulations, but I'll say it again on the show. Earning the doctorate, it's, uh, watching you go through the process is, cr- is crazy, and you should be super proud. And just for anybody listening, uh, first of all, he does want to be referred to as Dr. Geis. I do one. not. <laughs> I do not. I'm actually going the other way. I'm getting yeah. rid of Mr., and <laughs> on my nameplate on my door, it just says G. There you go. <laughs> so you're going less uh, uh, formal. I less, like that. Less is more. Yeah. Um, the other thing is, if you're thinking about or have been thinking about some kind of extra certificate, or going back to school, you just have to go for it. Just dive right in, like with so many things. I put it off for a long time, and you know, still was hesitant starting up that whole process. But you can, you can do anything. You just, I mean, nobody's busier than Geis is, and uh, and if he can get this degree with all the stuff he's involved in, anybody can do anything. So give it a try. It does benefit you a lot. I appreciate that, Nick. I appreciate the congratulations. Uh, I will say this: you do not need to be extremely smart to get a doctorate. You do not need to have the best writing skills because when it comes to writing, um, I'm adequate at best. What you need to be is 100% crazy. That's what you need. It takes you being crazy, understanding that you're going to live a crazy life for four years. Um, and then after that, you, you got that piece of paper that says that you accomplished craziness and you get to go out and work with a lot of amazing people. It's very new to me, but it already has opened up so many doors and I'm very grateful for that. <clears throat> yeah, I wanted to 
just throw that in as one last piece. Opening doors, definitely uh, the extra degree can help you with, with that in ways you might not even think about. So that's a big one. Something else I've been thinking about from this past year, I don't want to go too deep into it because we've talked about it a lot just because it was a big deal for us. I'm going to call this in general the power of PD and how important it is and how powerful it can be to attend different sessions and talk to your colleagues. For us, the biggest one of those this past year was, of course, the ISTE conference in Philadelphia. Um, just meeting with so many worldwide tech educators. I know it changed a lot of what we do on the podcast and changed our direction in a lot of different ways. Um, anybody that's going to be in the area of the ISTE conference for this coming year, I know for it's probably not a possibility for us. I believe it's out in California, but if you are on the West Coast, definitely check it out. And if you can't swing that one, then just find some. They're all over the place. Every state has their big kind of go-to conferences and it doesn't even have to be a tech one, but you get so much out of these experiences. And if you found yourself in a, maybe a lull where you're just focused on that day-to-day stuff, take some time to think big picture and, and attend some PD sessions because it really can, uh, though it may seem difficult, it kind of can pump some energy back into your day and get you excited about some, some new things. Speaking of PD, Nick, where are we going to be over the next couple of uh, months? What are some conferences that we're going to on. Yeah, sure. So if you're in the New Jersey, New York, Philadelphia, uh, general kind of tri-state area there on the mid-Atlantic East Coast, you can check us out at, I just get the letters mixed up, N-J-E-C-C? Or yes. EEC. It's EEC. NJECC. Yeah, the NJECC conference. It's in Northern Jersey. Um, we presented there last year. It's a great conference on the Montclair uh, University campus. Really exciting. We're going back there to present uh, again this year. It's in January. Three of our favorite sessions to share with people. Um, so you can do that one. And I believe, hopefully, if we're lucky, we have another one coming up in South Jersey in March. It's put on by a gifted and talented teaching association in New Jersey, uh, which we haven't been to before, but we're excited for the podcast possibility to head down there uh, to share some similar stuff as well. So that should be really, really nice. Those are the two coming up that are a little bit bigger. We have a couple smaller ones. Uh, we'll be at a couple ed camps and things like that over the next couple of months, but we're hoping to pick up a little bit more. Let's get into our reflection on our podcast a little bit, and I'll, I'll start this off. And uh, Got Tech, we're a little over a year and a half old now. Uh, we're 49 episodes in. Uh, we just now started to really hit the ground running with our blog and uh, we're giving a lot of free templates away and things like that. So head over to the site, sign up for one of our, our free templates uh, that will put you on our newsletter as well. And every month we'll send out uh updates to the, the free templates that we have, where we're going to be. We're not going to spam you in your email to be like a once or twice a month thing. We're thinking on alter, alternate weeks of our podcast, but uh, head over to gottech.com. Sign up, subscribe, uh, be a part of our Got Tech community and grow with us. Yeah, definitely check it out. I, I think also for 2020, where it's going to mean we need a name for our Got Tech community. I don't know what it's going to be yet, I've got some ideas. I was thinking like maybe the Got Techies jumps out at me immediately. I haven't read any of these by yet. They're just kind of popping into my head as we go. But um, if you check out gottech.com, you can see some of these uh, new resources that we're providing. And like I said, the newsletter and just kind of be a part of that growing community. So definitely check it out. You can follow Got Tech outside the podcast at gottech.com or on Twitter at wegottech. All right, so this is kind of a, a wrap-up segment um, to some of the things that we've been doing over the last couple of months. We've been to seven different events. Um, 
including ed camps, conferences, things like that. And one thing we always ask for are questions uh, from our audience. And we give them a, uh, a Google form and we say it could be anonymous. We don't collect email addresses for this. Uh, we say it could be anonymous if they want to put their, their, their first or last name or even their contact information if they want direct communication from us. But for this, uh, we'll probably just say either anonymous or give a first name uh, because some of these uh, questions I really enjoy because they're they're digging deep and maybe they're uh, really admitting to some areas that they can improve upon uh, or in some cases the way you and I can improve upon uh, we could relate to this a lot so we wanted to bring this to a podcast and uh, we think it's very important to reflect on some of these issues because a lot of these actually have gone with some of the podcast episodes that we've done but it's also stuff that people time and time again bring up and uh, really want to dive into and discuss. So we're, we're hoping that this segment of the episode will cause us to get more questions from our audience and also maybe start you know some type of a chat like some type of a dialogue on twitter or or somewhere else so let's just get right into it and uh nick why don't you go ahead and take sure. the first one yeah sure so this is from uh, larry in philadelphia thanks larry larry says that his students seem bored he feels like that he's being too routine in the classroom uh, in particular larry comments uh, i thought i am producing quality activities but student feedback is telling me otherwise so if you've had an experience like this to anybody into Larry if you happen to catch the episode. I think for me, one of my big takeaways, it's something we've been thinking about a lot on the show, definitely think about bringing some elements of gamification into your classroom. Um, if you want to break away from that routine, make it fun, kind of see some engagement. I think for, for students of literally any grade level, you can't do that any better than with game elements, whether it be a scavenger hunt in the room where they sort of get to get up and move around, whether it be even just as simple as going to like a tech tool such as Kahoot as the most popular one, but maybe a, a gim kit if you really want to get fancy. Um, even some of the motivated classroom uh, motivating tools that you can use like uh, uh, like Classcraft to sort of engage kids in really any process of the classroom is from even mundane things like just procedural stuff. There's all these little ways that you can sort of spice it up. So that's that's what I would say to Larry in, in Philly. Yeah, I'm going to just chime in a little bit on this because I totally get it, especially with some schools that make teachers have the same tests, do the same labs, do the same this, do the same that. Gamification is fantastic to break it up, but you don't need to get too far away from that routine. Remember, we need to think about all of our students, and some students need the routine. If they don't have the routine, they get lost. So gamification, you could just add that as a learning activity within this routine, but it's going to change it up. But the other thing I could think of is when I was in the classroom, I love Survivor. I absolutely love Survivor. It's competitive. There's there's mind stuff. You have to think psychology. There's a communication piece. There's strategy, all this stuff. So I once brought up in the class that I'm a big Survivor dork. And several of my students were like, yeah, I watch it too. And I was like, this is fantastic. And they were like, let's do Survivor in here. And I was like, okay. And I went home that weekend and I kind of tried to figure out a way to get Survivor into the classroom. So what I did is I put them on teams and certain activities, they earn points and then they can cash those points in for a piece of the Survivor puzzle. And by the end of the quarter, they would have to solve some type of puzzle, which everyone did it. I bought them ice cream from our neighborhood ice cream place and they loved it. But basically it was just 
using Survivor as a motivation factor for them to do quality work. Yeah, so you got to think about little things like that that you can bring in to sort of spice it up. This next one is from Jess in Bordentown. Jess says, how can I get my students to be more creative? I try to give them choice between presentations, reports, posters, but they still seem to be disinterested. Uh, My school has only one set of laptops per wing, uh, so I believe Jess feels like she can't always do a lot of the tech that we talk about because of that lack of uh, access. So I would say, and some of this is going to involve tech, and Jess may be planning ahead to get access to those uh, set of laptops. I know we existed like this in our school for a long time and it was sort of a hassle, but I know that it is definite possibility. Um, Students do get bored of, you know, oh great, we're doing another presentation or another paper. Um, But those are important things, right? We have to have them practice writing because that's such an important skill for life and presenting. You have to get up and speak to groups all the time. We need kids to get good at these things and build confidence. But to keep them interested, I like to just kind of do little twists on each one. Uh, One of the, like a presentation, for example, you want them to get up and practice that, find a twist you can build in, such as maybe the Pecha Kucha style of presentation, which we've talked about before, where, excuse me, where each slide of the presentation is, uh, there's a certain amount of seconds. What is the? 20 seconds. Yeah, 20 seconds, and it's just an image, no words. Uh, So it kind of forces them to think outside the box and gives them a challenge there. And I think there's something like that for reports and posters that you could build into. You could easily do a Pecha Kucha without technology. Have them make a little, maybe use eight and a half by 11. I don't know, print print out images or take images from magazines or stuff, uh, something like that. One person talks, the other one holds up an image and you just keep going or, you know, something along those lines. Come up with simple drawings that they could do on the whiteboard that might take five minutes to draw out. And then they present you know, walking across the whiteboard. If you have a 15-foot whiteboard, they start at the left, and as they progress through their presentation, they they follow the pictures down the row. I mean, you can do some of these uh, techie exercises without tech, and that's the creative piece on the teacher's part there. Uh, Another thing that I like is a lot of times students just take way too long to brainstorm, come up with these creative ideas. So instead of having them brainstorm and put time into the class period, the brainstorm, have a brainstorm wall. Just say, hey, this is where we get to be creative. Put whatever you want up here as long as it's appropriate and start brainstorming. That way, when we have to do a project, someone can go up to the creativity wall, whatever you want to call it, and get some type of an idea, just maybe some motivation, inspiration, just by looking at the board. Yeah, that's a great point. And I I like how you mentioned that, you know, a lot of the tech stuff we do get into, there is usually a non-tech version. And sometimes that might even be better than the tech version. Who knows? And if you have to do it, you can do it and give it a try and it might work out for you. Um, Next, we've got uh, Kevin from Hoboken. Kevin's a little bit rude here. I don't know if I, how I feel about this, but Kevin says, Nick, you are amazing. Guys, you need work. Before you get mad, guys. Okay, so he saves it here. I'm talking talking with making images, presentations, etc. looking good. Oh, never mind. That's actually true, Kevin. Thanks for pointing it out. <laughs> I must admit, I have guys equivalent skills in this area. What is a free program that I can use to make my images look good? Guys, I'm going to throw this one to you. Yeah, so Nick and I really love Canva. All right, and there's a freemium out there, but I just heard, and I'm hoping, I'm hoping this isn't fake news, but I just heard that Canva is having an education like branch off. So Canva for education. And this should take care of, I'm hoping, the privacy stuff and making sure that we're good with uh, COPA, FERPA, and all that stuff. But I'm really interested to see what 
Canva for Education looks like. And I heard that it's going to be free, but I need to find something concrete. And if I do find that concrete thing, I will put it in the show notes. But I'm telling you right now, whether it's Canva for Education or regular Canva or Canva Pro, Canva is the way to go. I mean, you speak truth here. All right. Well, half truth. It says Nick's amazing. Not sure about that one, but <laughs> half truth. Guys, you need work in this area. I'm glad that you clarified that. Um, but I'm saying that Canva makes the person that is not creative and, and not good with visuals adequate. I find myself as being adequate. I wouldn't say great. I, I still send stuff to Nick to tell him to brush it up and make it look good, but I am adequate. Yeah, Canva is the easy answer there, and really cool to hear that there is a Canva for education. This next one is from Jasmine. Jasmine has a class of 30 students. She says, I'm trying a student-centered approach, but I'm finding it hard to manage. It's hard to tell where students are in each assignment. Each classroom has access to five laptops, Chromebooks, or desktops. A couple challenges here. One of those challenges just being, you know, any student-centered lesson, you do need a good way to keep track of where your students are, and that can be tough. Um, the next challenge being technology can make that pretty simple. If there's like a Google form they can fill out every so often where you can see those results, that would help. But she's only got five laptops, so maybe that's not an option. I would recommend a tool like Classroom Q um, because this would allow students to maybe use their personal uh, electronic device like a cell phone. Um, that's going to depend a little bit on your school's policy there, but they can pull up Classroom Q on their cell phone. Um, and then maybe for the kids that don't have access to that, you could then sort of sprinkle in the laptops or Chromebooks to help out, but use this as a way to check in uh, to let, let at least give them a way to get a hold of you uh, if, if they need help. Also, if you have five devices and you do not have the ability to have them use their cell phones, just just have the and they're not using those five devices the whole time have one of them open for questions just have them walk back and this will help them refocus type in their name their question and then go back to their seat and keep working that's one way around it and really going along with this in the student-centered approach if you, if i hear five chromebooks or five laptops or five devices i'm immediately thinking station rotation that's where you know each station has a different activity and it might be useful to have a piece of technology or maybe you have a hybrid where some of the stations don't need technology and that allows you to have seven eight nine stations if you want it but there are there's always some type of an option we can get creative we can get what we need in those classrooms to make some type of a blended learning or student-centered learning activity with minimal use of, of technology with you know one-to-one -one or without technology we just have to get creative in how we bring that about yeah, it's a good point. Our next one is from uh, David out of Springfield. David says, I want to give my students a voice. I have a, class, a small class of 11 students, and this is my first time teaching. Um, it's also his first year in the district. He says, I teach an elective in humanities, and the curriculum says that the final project will be offered any suggestions for a project. If you really want to go big picture, David, I'm going to throw out uh, something we've talked about called a passion project. Passion project really quickly letting the students essentially do whatever they want. Now you would have to somehow build in that that passion project must tie back into the content of the course. But within that, let them research and build and, and present with as, as few boundaries as possible. That's going to make them really super engaged in it. And, and hopefully I'll teach them how things that they like and are interested in kind of relates back to what you're teaching as well. And this, the 
my other the other great thing about doing this is that can build in technology if they want to do some kind of tech-based presentation also can be completely not connected to tech and if they want to maybe build something as part of this or i don't know and the possibilities are literally endless with this type of an assignment so i would check it out going along with the passion project uh, nick was talking about i don't know individualized passion projects there but with a group of 11 students i would try to get them all on board with one cause i mean this is a humanities I think it said in there. Yeah. This is a humanities course. Get on board with one cause. Show them how to be, I don't know, run an event show or do something that shows awareness for a cause, raise money for a cause as a group. 11 people, 11 students, perfect number to get this thing going. All right. So we've done it here with ALS. Uh, there's, there's a local nonprofit called Hope's Love Hope Loves Company, and it's it's basically just to help families with ALS. Uh, they have children's camps. They do a lot of great work. Uh, our softball team here ran an event seven, six years ago for ALS because I'm one of the two coaches, and we want our athletes to be rounded. We want them to be a complete person. We want them to be academic. We want them to be athletes, and we want them to be human. That's just what we want. So we had them on a couple of our rainy days where we got rained out. We had them organize an event that brought awareness to ALS. Uh, it also raised money and they went and organized everything, brought it together and we raised a couple grand in one night for ALS. Do the same thing in the classroom. I think it's amazing. Okay, next we've got one from Pamela in Media PA. Pamela says, I'm so confused. I'm a second year teacher and my school is divided on how homework should be given and if homework should be given. What is your take on this? Uh, Pamela, I got to be honest, I'm divided too. I, I do know I'm getting more and more away from homework. 10 years ago when I started teaching, I sort of felt like it was something you were supposed to do and it was wrong if I wasn't giving, I don't know, 20 homework problems a night, but my feeling has definitely changed on this and leaning more towards less homework. Usually what homework is for me now is a continuation of the classwork that students don't finish while they're there. Of course, the argument against homework, as I'm sure you've heard, you know, if it's just purely homework, if they're confused on it, it's tough for them to get the help that they need at, at home because they don't have access to anybody. It's just them. So that's why I sort of like letting it continue from class because then they started it in class, so they should have some clue of what's happening. And, and you were there at the beginning, so you, uh, in theory, they could have already gotten the help from you that they needed to at least start it. So it takes away some of that stress. But I, I don't know. Like I said, I'm a little undivided myself. Where do you where do you fall on this one, guys? At the beginning of my career, I was giving them homework a lot. Every night they went home, they had some type of a homework set. Uh, as I get older and wiser, I am becoming to realize that by giving homework, we are probably actually doing them a disservice. Let me back up. By giving them certain types of homework, which was traditionally what I gave them, we were not doing them any favors whatsoever. So let me just paint this picture real quick. And I'll tell you the one, and I don't always agree on everything that she says, but Alice Keeler, I think, is on point when it comes to homework. Uh, I, uh, I'm a fan of Alice. Um, some things I agree upon, some things I don't, but I think that's what makes education great and, you know, PLN's great. And basically, it's all about this divide that we're trying to bridge the gap here. So Nick Johnson's parents are both science people. They're in the science field. 
and I am a science teacher, but you know, John over here, his parents, they, they are not science people. If I give new content to them, to the students and assign them this new content and they're going home and they have questions, well, the, the Nick who has science parents can ask their science parents for help and they're progressing so much further than the kid that's trying to figure it out on their own where the science um, background is just not there for the parents and they can't help them out so really what you're doing is you're making a larger divide between talent levels in your class which is going to make it even harder for you to teach them so what types of homework can we give at home we could do some type of a flipped classroom where they just take notes and they're not expected to be knowing everything this is just a like an overview of it. And then when they get to class, the teacher might go over some points that are typically the, the areas in which students get hung up on and try to bridge the gap that way and practice in, in class and also give one-to-one -one help there. I think that's awesome. And I think that's acceptable homework. But to give them homework, to go home, really, I don't know. I, I struggle with this because when I go home, I want to spend as much time with my three kids as possible. I have a couple of hours before they go to sleep. So is it fair for us, even though they're a little older, they're in school, is it fair for us teachers to every teacher pile on 10, 15, 20 minutes of homework every night and they probably have piano lessons. They probably have a sport that they're going to. They probably have this and that. So what what are we doing? I mean, there are a lot of teachers out there, and this is a little bit of a rant, but I'm going to roll with it because it's coming to me right now, and I'm passionate about this. There are a lot of teachers out there that, you know, don't like technology because students play video games or they're always on it. They're on social media and all that, and that's taking away from family. Well, I think also this homework piece, if every class is tacking on you know, 20 problems, and it's taking them 20 minutes per class or something like that, or say five of their courses, that's robbing them of the two hours that they have before they they go to sleep after their extracurricular activity. So for me personally, I'm looking to minimize homework. And if I am giving homework, it needs to be something that's not going to further the gap or further the divide between knowledge levels of students in there. Yep, I like that point. And I also want to reemphasize that maybe the answer is uh, just changing homework, different types of homework than what it used to be, uh, than some, something other than just like a problem set. So next we've got uh, Carrie, uh, Carrie out of Hackettstown. Carrie says, I want students to dive deeper into the content without having them write a book report or do a PowerPoint presentation. Do you have any ideas? Um, man, that's a tough one, Carrie. Diving deeper into the content. For me as a science guy, I always think about diving deeper into the content as looking at raw data um, with something like Data Nuggets, uh, which you can uh, check out. We've talked about it before. Really, really cool to have students look at, you know, not somebody's synthesis of data, somebody else's understanding of the data, which is what they get in a secondary source like a textbook, but having them look at the data themselves. But I know it's different across the content areas too. So I don't know, where do you fall on this one, guys? Yeah, I'm right there with you. I mean, data nuggets are great for science and math. Uh, but if you look into a social studies course or an English course, English with Shakespeare, how can we get them to dive deeper looking at data? I mean, that's a little tough, but data doesn't always have to be numbers it could be qualitative as 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 well so if you're getting passages if you're taking certain passages and getting them to examine those passages to see what they really mean in Shakespeare that's diving deeper all right so what i always like to do to get students to really know content in that way is if you take a qualitative uh, phrase 
from Shakespeare, from anything, and you ask them to make an analogy, right, or a metaphor or something like that, then you know that they're really getting it. And they are diving deeper because they're searching for ways to compare it to something else, which means that they get the gist of that statement. Uh, the same thing for um, history. If you're studying war tactics and, and how, you know, George Washington won this war or whatever it is, have them do a stop motion. Have them get creative with you know, really anything. Have them make a model and explain it. Have them find something that they are passionate about. So if a kid really likes Legos, let them use Legos to make make a battleground and then explain what he or she made. These are ways that we can get them to dive deeper and it doesn't necessarily need to have technology once again. Yeah, great point. Um, next, we've got Brennan from Dover, Delaware. Ooh, Delaware. Uh, Brennan says, my students are lazy. I feel like I'm putting in all this effort and my students are being minimalists. What should I do? Go ahead. I, I got to take this one. I think we need to do some reflection on this one. Uh, my biggest thing is that first statement, my students are lazy. Students can be lazy, but they, in general, aren't all lazy. They're unmotivated. So what I would do is check your vision of your classroom and really bring it back to the teacher here. It is our job as teachers to motivate our students to get them to learn the best way they know how. So it kind of sounds like to me that maybe this is at the beginning of the year and maybe uh, this teacher does not know the class beyond like maybe their name. You got to find a way to motivate them. You, you could use uh, class craft that will bring in something that gets students excited. You could really use any type of gamification. Find out what they're interested in. I don't, it doesn't say what he teaches, right? No, it didn't, he didn't say. Okay, but try to make whatever content that you're doing relatable to them and their interests. If, they, if the kid likes cars, tell them to design a car and put content all over that car make a presentation have the car there uh so if they're doing i don't know give me a topic nick i'll come up with something off the top of my head world war ii world war ii all right so every single car has a quality in which this kid likes maybe it's the color maybe it's the type of engine maybe it's this maybe it's that all right so have him use the parts of a car to describe the characteristics of war generals or tactics or this one would be the best at this this one would be the best at this and relate it to that car i know it sounds ridiculous but if you bring in what they're interested in they will fly with it challenge them this also a question not to beat this one too much to death but makes me think of we saw uh, rick Wormelli. Yep. speak a few years back and uh, he talked about something that always stuck with me which was he had his students design a like a comic book right like so a series of frames where they draw in and it's supposed to you know show their understanding of something they read I think in a book and I, I have done that many times and, and just like Rick described is the same thing I saw which is they spend five minutes drawing these crappy stick figures and they're like doing it just to kind of get it done and turn it in and, and you get really not super great there's not a lot of effort and you, you pretty much have that same response as a teacher like man you guys are lazy like you put no effort into drawing these cartoons at all and what he his reaction to that was when he got those things back is he he took them he took the stack of comic strips that they drew and, and the next day he handed them all back to the students and they spent a half hour of class watching uh, tutorial videos on youtube about how to draw 
cartoons. There's all sorts of things that sort of show students like a quick and easy way to do like cartoon eyes or a face or a body and make it look good at the same time. And he talked about color and he talked about filling out the frame and kind of gave them some some background for like, here's how this should be. Here's what the expectation is. And I think a lot of times as a teacher, you just hand this thing out with your own vision of what it should be. And then the students don't know how to do it. Not everybody's a good drawer. Some people that's actually like stressful for them because they think they are not good at it or they don't know that they're like, you know, for my kids in a chemistry class, they may not feel like, what do you mean? I'm supposed to I'm supposed to draw like an actual drawing and put time into this. This is not an art class. So you kind of have to sometimes give them some background, teach them a little bit about what you expect them to do. Use a, a really high quality rubric that lets them know like, hey, if you're going to earn a good score on this five out of five or whatever scale you're using, this is what it's got to be. Set those expectations. So I th And then, you know, Rick in, in Rick's story, he circled back and he said, after putting some time and showing them, here's how you draw, here's what I expect. This is not acceptable what you guys did and letting them redo it at no penalty. He said, uh, you would be amazed at, at the difference in that. So maybe that's a different approach to take for if you feel like you're not getting out of your students what you would expect. Jumping into the next one, we've got Liz. Uh, Liz is from Cherry Hill. She says, we are a G Suite school. My district doesn't have money in the budget to um, buy any big, fancy, expensive ed tech tools. Do you know of any free ones that could help me be more creative with my teaching? So there are several free ones out there. We already mentioned in some, like Canva, yep. and if they do this Canva for education. Uh, but one of my favorites, it's an extension, Pablo, that allows them to be creative. I love Google Drawings. Anything that I want to do anywhere else, I can do on Google Drawings. Use, find ways to make Google Drawings a creative tool. You just got to get comfortable and familiar with it. There are plenty of YouTube videos out there of people doing cool things with, with uh, Google Drawings. You could even use slides for a lot of the same stuff. They really work well together. I mean, you go to add a, add a picture and it takes you over to a Google drawing like Canva, um, Canvas, I mean. So go do that. I mean, it's very easy to say that we don't have money to do stuff. It's very easy. And it's very easy for some districts, you know, to look at another district and say, hey, they have more opportunity there. But as the teacher, we, we have to challenge ourselves to be creative, think outside of the box, and use tools for a different purpose than what they're intended to be, or for more purposes than what they're intended to be. And we kind of went over this in our last episode. Actually, it was what, two episodes ago. So I would revisit that episode because I think we, we kind of answered that question in episode 47. Uh, but I would say Pablo, Canva, and just using Google Drawings, finding different ways to use it, those are my three go-tos. <clears throat> yeah, I was going to throw out one that we talked about a lot this summer that is definitely a free resource and a great one, and that is uh, Wakelet. Uh, but specifically for me, using the uh, Flipgrid Shorts camera with Wakelet that lets students record uh, their voice, add it to the Wakelet board. And with the Shorts camera, they can also write and draw as they're talking, kind of narrate. I think it's just a really, really great tool. And totally free and they can do it on their cell phones with an app that they download. It's super awesome. Uh, which leads us into our 10th and final question from Mariana, also out of Philadelphia. My supervisor has expressed the importance of collecting and using data in the classroom. I'm an English teacher with 130 students. How can I collect data that is meaningful? I'll do the I'll do the obvious one, Mariana. Every time I finish a unit, I send out a Google form because um, it's simple, it's free, 
and it's just the easiest option for everybody. It's got three questions on it. One is the student's last name, so I can organize the data. Second question is uh, how they liked the presentation of the material in this unit. Um, did they find it easy to use five-point scale? The second question is how do they, f do they feel like they learned effectively in this unit? Same five-point scale. Any data you're collecting, you want to keep it as simple as possible. I know filling out reflection forms after classes I've been in that are like 40 questions long, analyzing every minuscule aspect of what I just went through. I just Nobody wants to be doing that and your students are no different. So they do want to give you feedback, but make it easy for them and make it easy on yourself. Just think about what the most important things are that you want to ask and then use a nice simple format like Google Forms to get that out to them. I'm going to take this and look at it as a different light. When I think of click collecting and using data in the classroom, I'm thinking these formative assessments. I'm thinking Quizlet, Quizlelize, uh, Gimkit, Kahoot, Quizzes, all those. They give you pretty instant feedback. So that would be a great way just to see the progress of your students after they were introduced to the content one time, whatever that may be. Okay, we can also look at formative assessment in the terms of handing in Google Docs or, or slides or something like that. And you could use the extension eComments. We, we mentioned this before. Uh, eComments is, there's a seven day free trial. And then after that, I think it's under 10 bucks and it's a one-time fee. And to me, that's worth it because you can do your own canned comments. You could use the canned comments they provide. You could do text uh, or you could do voice comments. And to me, that's a game changer in education. I use it all the time. Uh, that's the way to go there. And that's going to allow you to look at their overall big project and give them feedback that's near instant. And that right there is super important. Then you have the summative assessments and collecting data there. Uh, what we can do here is we can make our grading of a summative assessment, such as an e-portfolio or presentation or anything like that. We can make a rubric that are covering our content standards or competencies or whatever you would like to call the milestones, anything else there. And you can keep track of where they are based on that standard. Are they proficient, advanced proficient, still working, whatever it is. Use that data and see if in the next chapter, when you're tying in the previous chapter to the next chapter, if you could get that student to raise that standard and make that connection so they're, you know, higher than what they were before. So that wraps it up for our 10 questions here. Thanks to everybody who submitted. If you've got a question and you're interested on our take, check us out on Twitter. It's probably the best way to get a hold of us and submit a question at we got teched, and uh, maybe we'll throw it in to the next time we do a, a segment such as this. All right, so I only feel like it is fitting if we talk a little bit about what we're doing over break just to end the show, you know, the last two, three minutes of the episode here. So, Nick, what do you got going over winter break? Yeah, I mean, besides just the rest and kind of that rebuild for the uh, that kind of long winter haul, right? You come back for January, February, March without any real uh, extended breaks. It's always a grind. The weather, at least if you're up in the northern part of the United States, it's uh, it's tough. It's like deep winter, and you really gotta gotta keep your keep your head down and, and stay with it. So you need to build up that strength for uh, for the long haul there. So I'll be doing a lot of that, resting and relaxing. I know I'm going to be prepping. I have another flipped classroom unit coming up for my chemistry students. So I'm 
trying to build a video series for that. You can find it on YouTube. It's on chemical reactions. And I'm pretty excited about that, actually, because I'm going to incorporate a bunch of the stuff we talked about um, with the Flipping Good Tech people from our who were on our last episode. So I think it's going to be really great. But that's just, you know, that's just uh, kind of the normal stuff. Extra excited about checking into some and listening to some educational podcasts that aren't about education. This has come up for us a couple times in the past, and uh, I'm kind of trying to bring it back for myself because sometimes you get the best ideas for your classroom or um, even if you are involved in some sort of educational PD like Geis and I, you get the best ideas from listening to things outside of your world. You know, if you're an English teacher, maybe check out some science podcasts. If you're a history teacher, maybe check out some math ones. It's always cool the connections you can find there, and I always get really, really exciting ideas by doing that. Uh, one that I read about recently is called The Productivityist. It's a tough one to say. Uh, the Productivityist featuring um, Mike Vardy is pretty cool. It's all about how to remain productive in your job and in your life and to sort of avoid distractions. And our world is really full of that. So I hope that's going to bring some stuff to my, you know, my own uh, to kind of help me out. Another one is called How to Be Awesome at Your Job. Uh, this podcast by uh, Pete Mikaitis. He's a career coach and he goes obviously into how to, you know, sort of stay productive along similar, similar lines. So I'm looking forward to both of those. And my favorite educational but not about education podcast is one I've brought up before. It's called Stuff You Should Know. I think every teacher should listen to Stuff You Should Know. They just bring up so many cool things. And if they're about science and related, I frequently will have my students listen to them and sort of build it into a class assignment to make it a little bit more interesting. So check those guys out also. But I hope that sort of helps in the rejuvenation process for me. What about you? What are you thinking, guys? Well, I'll just stay on the uh, the avenue of podcasts real quick because I know this is going to drive you nuts, but <laughs> in my uh, podcast player, I looked this morning and I have 1,452 unlistened to episodes. Oh my God. How does that make you feel, Nick? I'm stressed and anxious already. Yeah, so I'm going to be definitely doing some of that. Uh, I also have bought a couple books um, that I wanted to read over the last two years that I haven't had a chance. And uh, lately, I've just been reading a lot on Sundays before the kids get up, after they go to bed. Uh, I've been trying to read, just catch up on things so I could better my practice. And what better way to do that than sitting down with the Teach Better team and finishing Teach Better. I started the first two chapters of it. I stopped because I really wanted to save it for Christmas break because the first two chapters are absolutely amazing and I really wanted to give it the time that it deserves to sit down. I like to write all over my books that I that I buy. I like to take notes and from time to time I'll go back in and I'll read some of the uh, reflections that I take away from the book. So Teach Better uh, book is one that I'm going to sit down with. Uh, I'll put that in the show notes where you could get it. You could go to teachbetter.com. Chad, uh, Tiffany, Ray, and Jeff, uh, I asked them to sign the book by leaving their, their favorite quotes. So they put those in there for me, which I thought was pretty cool. So now I have several of my favorite ed tech slash educational leaders out there that put their quotes in books. And then eventually I'll probably do something with all those quotes and have a collection on display there. But I'm doing that. I do also coach wrestling, so I'll be doing a lot of wrestling coaching over the break. And then uh, I'm getting really pumped for baby New Year's. So I don't know if I ever told you about baby New Year's, but this is when I send out invitations to... uh, 
several of my friends that have kids and they all come over at 4 p.m. on New Year's Eve. And at 7 p.m. I do a little countdown. By 8 p.m. they're out the door. By 9 p.m. I'm in bed. But uh, the last uh, time we had it last year, we had over 30 kids under the age of five. This year, I'm shooting for 50. My wife's going to kill me. <laughs> I've been around for a couple early baby New Year's events, and they are pretty epic. It's uh, exactly what it sounds like it would be. So that does sound like a good time. That's it for this episode. Remember to send us in some questions if you like our listener question segment. We think we got a lot of great stuff out of that. I hope everybody has a restful and relaxing break and is starting to plan some exciting stuff for the 2020 upcoming year. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Got Tech, the podcast. Remember to subscribe to our show and follow us at We Got Tech on Twitter so you can stay up to date with the latest episode releases, blog posts, product reviews, and PD announcements. You can also follow Geist and I individually at Geist Got Tech and at Nick Got Tech on Twitter or on Instagram at Nick Got Tech. Finally, remember to check out our website, gottech.com, where we post all our episodes, articles, and resources available to you for free. Until next time.